What does a robot do? A robot does things that maybe a human used to do. Okay, that means the robot's coming to take the job. Well, that's not really exactly what happened. Welcome back to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Those of you that have been following along loyally will notice that we've had a few robotics-related interviews in the last few months. Jorgen Pedersen of RE Squared Robotics and Neil Ashbaugh of New Century Careers come to mind, where we talk about this union between human and robot, not the singularity, but in the world of work, in the world of careers, where robots gonna replace humans and where are they gonna make things safer and allow us to do more. This was yet another conversation with someone who is really moving the needle, not just in Pittsburgh, but across the country as it pertains to robotics in the world of manufacturing. Jay Douglas is the Chief Operating Officer of the Advanced Robotics in Manufacturing Institute and is tasked with deploying $80 million from the U.S. government to invest in promising robotics companies that will change the outlook and the adaptability of the American manufacturing industry. I had a really good conversation. This is actually very much like the one we had with Neil, where I just got to ask really 101 questions, learn some of the basics, get some of my misconceptions corrected, and you're gonna get that same opportunity here as you listen to my conversation with Jay Douglas. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Well, Jay, thank you so much for giving us some of your time today to be on the podcast. Quite welcome. Glad to be here. The the best place to start would be just explaining what the Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Institute is, does, and uh, it's only been around for about a year or so, so how it got started. Sure. So Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing, ARM Institute, is a public-private partnership where we are sponsored by the United States Department of Defense on one side, and on the other, we are a membership organization where we have over 150 members right now from across the spectrum and across the United States. Uh, By that, I mean we've got very large companies all the way down to small nonprofits, startups, large universities, trade associations, mid-sized companies, um, uh, uh, quite a variety. We have eight different membership levels. So what we do is we work with our membership to come up with priority projects or ideas to improve the state of manufacturing and competitiveness of manufacturing in the United States. And then we fund those projects that, that we create through road mapping and discussing with our members with the money that we get from the DOD. Um, our members join together on project teams and they, they work on these things. And then when they're done, uh, they share the intellectual property that's created with the rest of the membership. And what we're doing is trying to come up with the right ideas uh, in technology and in workforce development so that you know, the money is being spent wisely and that when it is the projects are done, that the results are shareable and usable and, and, and attractive to the rest of the membership so that uh, ultimately there is impact. And we are improving manufacturing competitiveness in the United States, and we're improving the quality and the supply of the workforce in advanced manufacturing. 
the numbers that I found online were $80 million grant from the U.S. Department of Defense and then about $173 million from more than 120 member and partner groups around the community. And that spans the entire country, correct? Right. Yeah, let me be very specific about that. It's an $80 million grant over five years from the DOD. We can get the money for five years. We have seven years to invest it. The $173 million number that you saw is what we call the cost share number. And when the, the business was being proposed, it was a competitive proposal with several other proposals to the U.S. government, the, this proposal went in with 231 letters of support from universities and companies from around the United States. And they were talking about in their letters their, their you know, proposed membership level and then the associated cost share dollars that they would apply to that to their time as members of the ARM Institute over the, f- over the seven-year period. And when you add all that up, that's where you get the $173 million number. It's not a cash number per se. The cash part of that would be the membership dues, if you will, which is, you know, is a, a smaller, much smaller part of the $173 million. So how much of the function of ARM is to deploy and invest the $80 million into commercial enterprises versus other causes related to workforce development and, and what else might be out there under your responsibilities? Well, so the, the, the entire focus of the Institute is to invest the money from the DOD. It, we're, we're investing in both technology projects as well as in workforce development projects. And the projects are, are, being, um, are being worked on by project teams. A typical project team might be a large company, a university, and maybe a robot arm supplier on the technology side. They would be working together to solve some problem. On the workforce development side, it might be a large university with an MEP working with a community college versus uh, we're also working with perhaps a trade association. You know, it's a group of people that are banding together. Um, you used the term MEP. I'm not Oh, familiar. I'm sorry. Forgive me. An MEP is a Manufacturing Extension Partnership. That's a program that is uh, funded and managed by the United States Department of Commerce out of the uh, NIST, National Institute of uh, Standards and Technology. MEPs, are, there's an MEP in every state in the country. Uh, Pennsylvania, for instance, has one MEP that has, I think, three or four different businesses underneath it. In Pittsburgh, uh, where we are, the, the, the MEP is Catalyst Connections. And what their mission is, is to support small manufacturers in problems that they have in quality, organization, uh, technology adoption, those kinds of things. So it's a Department of Commerce program. And we, we work with a lot of MEPs. They fit very nicely with us, particularly in tech transfer uh, to smaller businesses. That's a harder audience for us to get to. Uh, there's there's so many more of them. There's like 9,000 small manufacturers in the United States. So uh, getting mindshare and access to them is, is, is much more difficult than getting mindshare and access with, for instance, the big aerospace companies. It was a competition to get this grant. It wasn't just the, the spinoff of CMU soliciting the Department of Defense for the uh, grant as it pertains to robotics. Talk about the significance of it landing, not only with CMU, but in Pittsburgh, and how that relates to maybe the local manufacturing scene and, and the implications of that. Well, first of all, I, you know, it's a, it's a big feather in the cap of the region, uh, winning this uh, proposal. 
a feather in the cap of the region, the city, the university for, for sure, uh, the local communities, the, the robotics community uh, in southwestern Pennsylvania, definitely. You know, you, you might think that if there's a robotics proposal going out anywhere nationally that Pittsburgh's got to play a role in it. You know, because of you know the the predominance of CMU in the robotics space, we're focused in manufacturing, which maybe isn't exactly what people think of when they think of CMU and robots. They think more of autonomous vehicles and stuff like that. That's what yeah, I think is way more visible in Pittsburgh right now with uh, Uber, Argo, Aurora, you know, some of the other some of the other companies. But it is it is very significant because it's a national. Uh, we're we're nationally recognized. Uh, it's a nice flow of money into Pittsburgh. It's not huge employment for us. We're going to be probably a maximum of, I don't know, in the next few years, 23 people. But, it, you know, it's, it's, a great, uh, it, it's, a good, it's a great program with national impact. Awesome. So, and, and in the last 10 episodes, actually, we've both interviewed uh, Brian Seleski at Argo AI and Neil Ashbaugh at New Century Careers, which is kind of that opposite ends of the spectrum that you just illustrated, right. which is very high technology, very headline grabbing, you know, on trend versus just when we talk about workforce development, changing people's lives through recognizing that there is this potential union between robot and man it's not the robots come in and take every single person's job it's the job evolves to have a fluency in which you can interact with the robot right and that's that's a really key point you know at uh, new century careers is a member uh, of our of our consortium uh, and actually participating on at least one of our maybe two of our uh, about to be funded projects Uh, so they're a very valuable member of our of our team. But, you know, I, I mentioned this very briefly earlier. We work in two spaces. One is technology projects. The other is workforce projects. And workforce is very, very important in advanced manufacturing. Uh, there's two macro problems in workforce and advanced manufacturing. The first is there's a skills gap. Uh, there's, not, there's not the right match of worker skills to the jobs that are available. And so we're working on ways to try to close that gap. The other thing is, uh, you know, somewhat paradoxically, based on what you read in the in the in the media right now, is that there's a significant shortage of labor in manufacturing. In the next five years, there's going to be something like seven or eight million unfilled jobs. So when you read about, you know, robots are coming to take your job, well, no. <laughs> Just look at the reports. Look at the demographics. There's not enough people choosing careers in advanced manufacturing, and there's not enough people with the right skill set. Those are two significant problems that are holding back the economy right now. Another paradoxical thing about this situation is that one of the real drivers of people putting robots in factories is the fact that they can't hire enough skilled workers. So, you know, it's... There's not enough workers to take the robots' jobs <laughs> as opposed to robots taking people's jobs. So frankly, when I hear that, and we heard something kind of similar from Neil when he was talking about it because he's you know on the ground trying to solve that problem. I'm a media guy, right? Like we're recording my podcast right now. There's video over there. I'm you know wishing I could post pictures of the robots on my Instagram account. I think in, in terms of media. And all I hear, you even said like the, the media headlines are incorrect, is this story not getting out. I mean, that's part of the reason I'm here. I, I, see, I smell the story that people need to recognize this and share it with people. And it has the potential to change people's lives on the ground. And that's, that's one of the things I, I guess I just can't get my head completely around is why 
the story so wrong? Is it as simple as the media likes to sensationalize and doomsday and worst case scenario? Is there more to it? What's your interpretation? The the simple, and I don't, you know, not to pick on the media, but the simple view of the story is, what does a robot do? A robot does things that maybe a human used to do. Okay, that means the robot's coming to take the job. Well, that's not really exactly what happens. What robots are good at, and, and it's very, actually very simple, very small set skill set that robots are good at right now that's changing. But robots are good at precise, repetitive tasks. Those are things that people aren't good at, precise, repetitive tasks. And that's where robots have historically been deployed and are still being deployed today. The thing is that you know companies that are really trying to automate are using people for the things that people are good at and robots for the things that people aren't good at. And ultimately what that means is that the key aspects of their business, cost, quality, and time to market are all improving when you put to use technology and automation the correct way. And those are the very aspects of what makes businesses survive and what makes them competitive. If you're a business owner, operator, and you're not doing everything you can to improve product cost, product quality, and lower time to market, by definition, you're going out of business. So what companies are really trying to do is to find ways to do things like that. Everybody's not running off to find robots to deploy. That's not the answer to everything. But as businesses become more competitive, there's more jobs. As we find more ways to deploy robots into other other businesses um, or new businesses, then employment's going to increase. One of our colleagues here at, at ARM you know, says that if you could only buy things that are made in the United States, you would be naked, sitting on the ground, and unable to communicate. Now, there's three examples in there. Naked. Very few clothing manufacturers operate in the United States right now. The cut and sew business moved to Asia and South Asia. That's where things are made. Somebody always says to me, yeah, well, Jay, there's a guy down the street from me who makes shirts. Yeah, but you know what he can't do? I don't even know who it is, but he can't make 5,000 polo shirts by next Tuesday. That's just the nature of the business. You know, textiles, clothing that used to be here. If we can come up with competitive ways of making it, largely through the deployment of automation, we can recover those industries back in the United States. Furniture, same thing. You know, furniture's made in other parts of the world, not as much as it is here in high volumes. Same thing. Electronics, communication, that was never made in the United States. <laughs> the cell phone I'm holding in my hand, it was never made here. If we could start making cell phones through, you know, putting automated processes in place, we could maybe start doing that. That's a whole other scalability issue. New cell phone comes out. They're not selling 10,000 of them. There's probably 10 million. I don't know what Apple's numbers are. But it's not, there's a skill set you know, gap and a scalability gap for most electronic devices because the volumes are so large. But if you can automate that, maybe there's a way that you can start recovering those industries. All that does is create great new levels of, of high-value employment, high-wage employment. We spoke with Alana Diamond, who runs Alpha Lab Gear, about two years ago. And she talked about one component, as, as you're talking about local economies and viable businesses here in the United States versus elsewhere. She she hammered this. It was just an unlock for me, and maybe it's super apparent. If it's made in America, you have a massive advantage as it pertains to shipping costs. And those are far from trivial. 
So where people get hung up is, well, American workers need to get paid more. They're sent to South Southeast Asia or where have you, because you know, you can pay the person a dollar versus whatever the minimum wage is here. The difference it, that can be it not only just stimulating the economy and giving people jobs in America being a noble goal in and of itself, but just transferring the costs of transportation, getting it across the ocean to keeping it local. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know the, the intimate details and facts of that, of that argument, the, the logistics transport costs. Right. My sense is that it's not that big of a difference. I think that the big issue in why did some jobs go overseas, and number one, there is a wage issue. Number two, for American businesses, there's a regulatory issue, a tax issue, and a real estate cost that they have to deal with that maybe isn't as prevalent in like Central America or Southeast Asia. Those are big costs of business, regulation, tax, real estate. Um, The workforce certainly makes a lot less money in those other parts of the world than it does here, so that's a thing. But what has also happened over the last decade or so, If you, there was an interview that Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, did about three or four years ago. And they asked him on camera and said, Tim, you know, if you, could, if, you had, you know, if you got rid of the wage issue, would you start making stuff in the United States? And his answer was, well, no, because that's only a small part of the issue. The issue is skill set and scalability, okay? It doesn't matter if you all of a sudden were paying your workers, you know, 20% of the dollar that you're paying them now. The skill set's not there to do these things. You can't instantly go out and hire a workforce that can make a cotton button-down shirt. You know, I mean, I don't know about you. I own one cell phone, but I probably have 20 cotton button-down shirts in my closet. That's a much more valuable market than the cell phone market is. On a, on, a, on a goods, a hardware goods basis. And the skill set doesn't exist here in a scalable fashion to do that, okay? So, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people move jobs offshore. And it's, it's generally economic, but it's not just about wage. It's about a whole broad range of things. It's not just about transportation costs either. I think you'd be surprised about what it costs to move uh, large volumes of goods from Southeast Asia into the United States versus what maybe it takes to move something from California to New York. I, I don't know that that's a big, uh, a, a big issue. It's, certainly, there's a difference. I mean, it only stands to reason. But I, I, again, I don't know the specifics of that piece of the equation. That's fair. Are there any projects that you have funded that you've announced yet or that you're particularly excited about? Or are they still lying in wait? They're still lying in wait. We're, um, we're not able to announce our first round yet because not every single one is uh, signed on the dotted line. Okay. Uh, we have four projects that are basically ready to go. In a week or so, we'll be announcing all four of those. They're very exciting. We're, we're then, in a week, starting to negotiate the next 16 project contracts. Wow. We've, uh, we've already decided which ones and what the teams are and which ones we're going to fund, but we've got to put those contracts together. But the first four, we're probably a week away. Can you give a sense of scale? So you talked about four, 16. I don't know how much of that 80 million that you have to allocate is used through those. Like in terms of the deal size or approximately where you're coming in for okay, these companies. Okay, so no, that's I can, I can answer that. I mean, we, we do fund projects on the technology side as well as in workforce and they're pursued by teams and, and teams you know, put together the proposal. They also have to, I want to back up a little bit before I tell you about the money. Every project has to include what's called cost share, which is this contributed 
it's contributed effort. It's contributed rent. It's contributed depreciation on hardware. You know, whatever it whatever it costs. And whenever the government funds anything, they require a one to one cost share. So if we give you a dollar to do something, you have to contribute a dollar somehow. And it doesn't always have to be cash. It could be labor or travel costs or depreciation or rent, those kinds of things. Um, so our typical workforce project is in the two hundred to $250,000 a year range. Our typical technology project is between five hundred and $800,000 for a year. Our projects are typically just one year, won't be more than 15 months. So that's basically the range. So you're talking about this capital allocation, and I think that similar to other media headlines, it's very easy for people to latch on to a number or just be oriented around the capital allocation. But another thing, and that's solving this problem that's been articulated outside of robotics, which is the valley of death. You get past initial seed funding, and then you can't find the funding to progress. But another thing that we've heard from entrepreneurs on the show and just in other conversations we've had is the gap in terms of an ecosystem of mentors and connections and role models that you see in other ecosystems where the software startup in Pittsburgh doesn't have 18 previous software startup who startups who've successfully exited and they can call on for advice. Given that this is developing as a hub for robotics, in a micro, in the industry of robotics, are you seeing that interpersonal network start to develop in union with the capital allocation? Yeah. And so actually there's sort of two parts of of your question there. Um, But one one is the, the ecosystem. And one of the things that we did, it was in the proposal to the government, and it's something that we've done from the very beginning, is create a national ecosystem. And what, what we've done is we formed up these, these groups called Regional Robotic Innovation Collaboratives. And what they are is a connection of companies, universities, MEPs, trade associations, and a region to create this sort of group within a region. Uh, there's one here that we put in Pittsburgh that's sort of headquartered out of this building, National Robotics Engineering Center. Uh, these are not physical locations. They're collaborations of people. We've got one in upstate New York, one in Boston, a couple on the West Coast, one in Texas, uh, one in South Carolina. Uh, we're going to be forming others in, in other parts of the country. And so we've got this ecosystem uh, that we are building to help people do these things. Um, and I think that's a real key aspect of the business. The other thing is that one of the things that our members tell us that is most valuable at their membership is coming to regional events and coming to our annual membership meeting and coming to the other meetings that we have throughout the year just to get together with each other and talk about things and share ideas and form project teams. And, you know, people do want to talk about what they're doing. They do want to share ideas. They want to talk about what they're trying to do you know, creativity, uh, you know, innovation comes from collaboration is a phrase that I heard once. And that's really the way we're set up on project teams and getting people together, building an s- ecosystem, building, I- enabling networking. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons why hopefully we're going to have higher impact is because we, you know, we, we envisioned that and we're working very hard to create that, that network and that, that capability. 
So as I was coming over here, I was thinking about towards the end of the interview, what I would want to ask you uh, as it pertains to whether it's a prediction of the future or things you're anticipating. And I realize that that's somewhat murky given that you haven't announced the investments that are being made through ARM yet. Mm -hmm. But perhaps maybe in broader strokes, when people imagine a future in which robots play a proportionally larger role in our lives... What are some of the arenas that get you particularly excited, particularly hopeful? Um, I have a bias towards optimism, if you haven't picked up on that. Well, I think that sensing, seeing aspects of robots where they can you know, pick and pack on a, in a warehouse, I think that's, that's something that's coming, that's being done in, in, some, in some cases right now. That's, that's sort of a, a combination of of super capable end effectors and end effectors, the end of a robot arm, you know, you know, it really enhanced capability there as well as uh, a small space autonomy. You know, it's not a taxi driving around or an Uber driving around Pittsburgh, but it's a vehicle running around a warehouse. You know, that's one of the things that I think is really going to be coming on. The ability to manipulate uh, like fabric, you know, soft materials, uh, which has historically been very, very difficult for robots that are, mostly designed for, you know, carrying welders on, you know, in, in car factories. You know, if they can, you know, manipulate soft factory f- fabrics, that's a thing. Uh, robots working side by side with uh, humans. Um, there's a word that sometimes people use called cobotics, which is, you know, co-worker in a, in a robot. That's a thing that I think is, is, is probably going to be maybe the next evolution in the automotive sector. And I think that's coming. Historically, robots really only operated behind walls or behind heavy fences. <laughs> they, they really weren't capable of working. But, you know, it wasn't safe for a human to be nearby. They don't sense. They just keep moving. You know, an arm swinging. You know, they're very heavy and, and could cause lots of damage. And I think cobotics is a thing that you're going to see a lot more of because the arms are becoming way more sensitive and way more capable. Um, ability to manipulate, uh, again, the, the, the repetitive, precise tasks, even on a really small scale, to build things like, for instance, electronics and things that involve wires. I, I think those are some of the pretty exciting things. Have you ever seen the movie where the robot conducts surgery? Like it's some contained tube and they, you know, use like a laser to cut the person open and then it's like robot hands blow. How far away are we from that? No, I don't <laughs> You know, that's one of the <laughs> the perceptions that people have of robots is watching movies, you know. Exactly. And that's, that's a long way off. Okay. But I think there is, you know, there are, there are you know, there's a, there's a thing about miniaturization and, and robotics that I think is, is common. I think, you know, the availability of high-speed internet uh, in remote areas, you know, can cause people to be able to do stuff like that. We are not involved in that space. We don't have anything to do with, you know, uh, the medical field. And so, but, you know, all I know is what everybody else does. But, you know, the scene at the end of the Star Wars movie when they're creating Darth Vader, I think we're a ways away from that one. Okay. (laughs) I hope. I guess guess I'll have to be patient then. (laughs) Well, this this has been great, Jay. Uh, Before we ask our standard last two questions, was there anything that you were hoping to discuss or share today that I didn't give you a chance to? No, I think I got it. I wanted to tell you what we do, um, why we're doing it, uh, how we're doing it. Uh, Hopefully I've covered covered those bases you know we're um we're really excited about our futures you pointed out we are new we've really been operating we were stood up about 15 months ago we've been operating about 12 months 
Uh, we've got a great team here, super capable team. Uh, we've got a lot of great members already, over 150. Yeah, already grown out of your office space too. Yeah, yeah, we're and we're uh, we're operating. We've got people. We've got projects in the field, and we'll, once we get the fourth one signed, we'll be able to announce the first four. And you know, we're 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 off and running. Dope. Well, yeah. if people want to learn more uh, about ARM and all this cool stuff that you guys are doing, what digital coordinates can we give people to learn so more? So ARM, A-R-M Institute dot O-R-G, that's us. Uh, when you get on the website, you can, uh, you, you get our, the Twitter feed's the same thing, ARM Institute. ARM Robotics it is, yeah. I'm connected to it. I just don't know what it is. It's all good. Well, <laughs> yeah. we have all the links in the show notes for this episode. Most yeah. people are listening to this anyway while they're driving or working or something. So uh, available in the show notes. Please give them a follow and check out all the cool things Arm is doing. Uh, but before we let you go, Jay, I want to give you the mic a final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Well, that's a, that, that's a tough one. <laughs> but, you know, f- g- given that I'm probably not talking to many robotic scientists... You know, one of the things is that, that, is I, that, that, as I mentioned earlier, the challenge for us is on the workforce side. And I would encourage people to consider jobs in advanced manufacturing. One of the things about it is it's a very quickly moving field. Uh, the skill sets that you might need for a job in advanced manufacturing today aren't going to be the same ones in the next five years. It's moving very quick, like most jobs are today. You're not going to be replaced by a robot, particularly if you get the right skill set. I'm not encouraging you not to go to college, but boy, there's some great jobs out there if you want to go to trade school and, um, and, and take a look at careers in manufacturing. We're never going to be a really competitive economy unless we can fill these manufacturing jobs. That is an absolute. You can't argue with demographics when it comes to economics. Unless we can fill these 5 million open jobs in the next 5 to 10 years, we're never going to, we're never, the economy isn't going to grow and we're not going to be as competitive as we need to be in the global, in the global marketplace. So I'd encourage you to take a look at manufacturing positions and training programs that support them. That would be my challenge. I love it. And it's kind of counterintuitive because to some degree, people who fear automation or or fear the advance of tech try to move as far away as they can from it because they assume that that's the safe space. And basically what you've articulated, what uh, the Neil at New Century Careers has articulated is that it's actually getting right up next to it that allows you to kind of ride the wave. So I think that that's maybe that's a helpful, helpful way of framing it for people. Agreed. Well, uh, Jay, thank you so much again for sharing your time with us today. We just went deep with Jay Douglas. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. I would encourage you, if you are a newer listener, to head on over to goingdeepwithaaron.com slash join to sign up for our once monthly newsletter, where we recap a book recommendation, some podcast recommendations, a video or two, and some links. It is a simple piece of curation of the digital world, which is in my opinion, one of the most valuable things that you can be providing other people. There are so many links. We are drowning in information and media. To have a partner, a co-conspirator, trying to filter out the noise and find the signal is a valuable service. So that's what I'm trying to provide you. Once again, going deep with Aaron Watson. Once again, goingdeepwithaaron.com slash join to get that once monthly newsletter. Thanks for listening. 
Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.